0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. When I was 12 years old, I took my first trip with my mom to Washington, Washington not my first trip with my mom, but my first trip with my mom to Washington, D.C. How many of you have, have been to D.C. and done the tours and the monuments and the museums, all those things, right? We did all the touristy stuff. Um, my excitement was really about this Star Wars exhibit that was temporarily there at the Smithsonian, so I kind of had like one thing on my mind, but I remember one particularly rainy day visiting the, the Kennedy Memorial. Raise your hand if you've been there. The, the Eternal Flame. Right? This this flame was uh, lit by Mrs. Kennedy in 1963 at the funeral of John F. Kennedy, and it's it's burned for the most part ever since. Right, burns day and night. It's right there; you can see it. And I remember it was raining, and we we go to the the Kennedy Memorial, and we we stand there, and we're hearing the tour guide talk, and and I remember thinking really two things, and I'm just being honest with you here. Remember, I was, a, I was 12 years old, so you know. So first, my first thought as I saw this thing was fire's cool, right? So there was no, we saw the Lincoln guy, no fire there. Kennedy, fire. So that, as far as like monuments and memorials, you know, that was kind of pushed to the top because I like fire. And then my, my second thought was, when are we going to the Star Wars thing? I was just, I was, I was really unimpressed other than the giant lighter in the floor, right? And, and so I completely overlooked this eternal flame. But now, as I'm a little bit more mature, at least I hope, if you think about this, um, it, it's actually quite an incredible like, technological feat, not only just what it represents, as you think of this continuing legacy of the president, that's what it's supposed to represent even after he's, he's been gone, but this flame has only gone out two times since 1963, the, the, the first um, is actually quite hilarious. So a few months after the original monument was built, um, it, it's been moved since then. It was moved in 1967, just up the hill a little bit to where it is now. But a few months after um, the funeral of the president, there was a group of, of Catholic schoolgirls who tried to, to bless the flame with holy water. And um, I, I don't know what they were teaching at school about water and fire, but they, the flame went out. And fortunately, there was a, a, a groundskeeper nearby who, was a, who had a lighter because he was a smoker, and he pulled out his lighter really quick and relit it. And that, that was it. So, it was, I mean, it was out for just a, a split second. And then, a few years after that, there was a heavy torrential downpour that not only put the flame out, but it also flooded the reignition system. And so, the, the flame was, um, was put out just for a short amount of time, but really only a few hours. It was relit after that. Since then, it has burned continually. There, there's been. Think of all the things that have, have gone on. People have walked by and completely overlooked it, like I have, like I did. Right? There's been there's been storms, torrential downpours, winds. There's even been uh, there's been protests, attempts to to stomp the flame out. There's even been people who have gone to the the, the flame and committed suicide there. All sorts of things surrounding this flame. Yet it hasn't been extinguished. In fact, it's been strengthened. As technology has grown, they've kept the flame lit while working on it, and this flame is even stronger than it was before. And as I, I think of the eternal flame at the Kennedy Memorial, I find it to be a really fitting picture for the people of God throughout the ages, right? Think of God's people, This small group of faithful followers, as we read through the Bible, as we follow through church history, often overlooked, right, by those who are unimpressed, often under threat of being extinguished by storms of opposition, either in different parts of the world or different parts of of history, yet by God's sustaining grace, the flame keeps burning, it, it truly is an eternal flame. Right? Now, this morning as we come to the end of chapter 2 of Esther and through all of chapter 3, we see an attempt to stomp out the flame of God's people. That's what's happening in this chapter. The events of the passage are, are really simple. Mordecai uncovers this plan to assassinate the king, King Ahasuerus, and he, he tells of it, saves the king's life, and then this man Haman, we, we meet, the villain of the story, rises to power. And he, it leads to this plot to try and wipe out the Jews because Mordecai refuses to honor him and bow down to him. So we see this plan start to, to unfold. And here we're, we're seeing a common occurrence in, in the scriptures. This is. This is not the first time someone's tried to stomp out the people of God in the Scriptures. In, in fact, you can trace the theme from the very beginning. We see it in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan deceives Adam and Eve. Right? We see it in, in Exodus when Pharaoh tries to, to suppress, to, to oppress the people of God. And God delivers them. We see it all throughout the Old Testament from Israel's surrounding enemies. When we come to the New Testament, we see it in the book of Matthew. When Herod hears that this king has been born and commits mass genocide against baby Israelite boys. We see it in Acts as the church is born and the gospel goes forth. And there is persecution both from pagan governments as well as religious leaders trying to stomp out the fire of the gospel. And friends, we see it in our own lives. From within, through temptations to forsake God. We see it from without, through opposition to the truth of Christianity and the Word. And as we trace this story all the way through the book of Revelation, we'll see that such hostility will continue until Christ returns. It's amazing to think about. We prayed for the Luces this morning. They are, they're doing work where we, in places we can't tell you, we can't know, because there is oppression and opposition and hostility towards the gospel in those places. But as we consider those things, it can seem like a bleak picture, we also see something pretty remarkable. The fires of faith from God's people never stop burning. They never stop burning. In fact, oftentimes when, when, when people try to stomp them out, the fire actually grows. The people are sustained and kept by God. The purposes of God continue on. Now, this can be a hard thing to see if, if you're in the midst of it. If you're in the midst of opposition and suffering, you notice if you look at our passage, the last word of chapter 3 is confusion. That's how we're left this morning, confusion over what's going on. And every honest Christian in this room knows what it's like to look at the difficulties of life, to look at the opposition around you, and to be confused, to say, Lord, I, I don't understand what you're doing here. I thought you were for my good. Help me understand this. Surely that's what Mordecai and the Jews and Susa felt as they heard this news of this plan. But as we journey through this passage this morning, we're given, we're given hope. And just like most of Esther, you have to read between the lines to see this hope. It doesn't jump off the page at you, but it is there. And we learn as we work through this chapter, end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, we learn that even in times of great confusion in opposition, God sees and sustains His people. Therefore, we're to trust Him when we experience those things. So, we're we're, going to walk through this passage in in three parts if you're taking notes. Let me just go ahead and give you the three sort of headings that we'll see here. First, God sees us when we're overlooked. You see that at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Second, God preserves us when we are opposed. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then, Third and finally, God identifies with us when we are suffering. So number one, God sees us when we are overlooked. Take a look at chapter 2 in verse 19. It says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Fen and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So, first notice this, verses 19 and 21, we see that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Okay, now... This doesn't mean he's just sort of like loitering in front of the palace. The language here is really talking about business being had. So this place, the king's gate, was this long building leading up to the palace. This has actually been uncovered in excavations. And it's a place where legal matters would be handled. And it's a place where business would be done. So we don't know exactly what Mordecai did. But the fact that he was there sitting at the king's gate, he was doing one of those two things. He was doing something, sort of business transactions. He was working. It gives us a hint that he was probably sort of a higher up in in the culture as well. And we don't know exactly why he is there, but we see pretty quickly that in God's providential plan, he has him at the right place and at the right time for a purpose, right? Because he overhears two of the king's eunuchs planning to assassinate the king. They said, we want to kill this guy. Now, we, again, we don't, there's so much we don't know when we look at the book of Esther. We know they're not happy uh, with, with something that happened, and so they're, they're plotting, and Mordecai hears about it, and what does he do? He tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and the result, verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that's the end of the matter, at least for a few chapters. Now, Mordecai's motive in sharing this news, we're, we're not really sure. Um, but may, maybe, I, I wonder if he's thinking of, of Jeremiah. So, if generation before, Jeremiah writes this, this letter to the people going into exile, and he, he tells the people while they're in exile, Jeremiah 29, 7, to seek the welfare of the city. So, maybe Mordecai, he's working in this, as a Jew in this pagan place that's not his home, He hears that this pagan king, we've seen already, this king is not a good person. He's really not smart either. He's a goofball. But he hears this threat on his life. And maybe Mordecai thinks, I'm to seek the welfare of the city. And so I'm going to commit this righteous act. And I'm going to make sure the king finds out about this. We're not really sure the motive there, but the reality is it is a righteous act, right? He saved the guy's life. And next, what you would think would happen, if you consider how kings worked in scenarios like this, Persian kings, you would would think there would be some sort of reward for Mordecai after saving Ahasuerus' life. In fact, the the Greek historian Herodotus, he referred to these Persian uh, archives that are listed in, in the book. That's what verse 23 says, recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the presence of the king. We have historical evidence of these things existing, but they would also state not only what somebody did for the king, but then the reward that was given to them. So they'd be given a feast, or they'd be given a tax break, or a financial gift, or a piece of property. And here we see that apparently, it's written in the book, but you know the Google Calendar wasn't working for King Ahasuerus. We already know he's a very self-centered individual, so for whatever reason... He completely overlooks rewarding Mordecai. And we later see in chapter 6 that he didn't intend to do this. He does later remember. But here, this, this kind and righteous act, really of the highest order, saving someone's life, is completely overlooked. But it's not overlooked by God. And the temptation for me here is to jump to chapter 6. But I'm not going to do that because we're going through the book. I'm not going to preach chapter 6. We're in chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 3. But he does remember, and he remembers at just the right time that God wants him to remember. Now, I don't know how Mordecai responded to this being overlooked, but I'm just going to be honest with you. I would be pretty frustrated, right? You, you know, not, not that you're doing it for this, but you know that uh, if you, you do something kind of the king, you get some sort of reward, and you do the greatest thing. You, you go out of your way to save this man's life and man he completely overlooks me and I wonder I don't know I wonder if he remembered the story of Joseph here sounds sounds familiar right Genesis 40 Joseph if you remember is in prison for a crime he didn't commit God's given them this gift of interpreting dreams as messages from the Lord, and he interprets the dreams of two of Pharaoh's men, and he asks one of them, the one who lives, he says, listen, remember me when Pharaoh restores you. The guy gets released, and he completely forgets Joseph for for two years. Joseph's stuck in prison, does this righteous act, completely forgotten, completely overlooked. You know, when you look back at the story of Joseph, do you know what the constant refrain is as you're walking through Joseph's sufferings and hardships and his being overlooked? The constant refrain is, the Lord was with Joseph. And eventually, in due time, Joseph was remembered. I think we see a a lesson here. When, When you feel overlooked by the world, know that God sees you and he is with you. God is with you. I think of this as a parent. Right? Parents, as you raise your kids and you're performing seemingly uh, meaning uh, meaningless tasks, right? Day in and day out and you're caring for your kids and you're wondering, does anybody see this, right? This good that I'm doing? Does it even make a difference? You feel overlooked. Or what about that difficult person that you Are trying to love, they're caring for them, and they don't seem to notice at all, or make any changes, or the day in and day out of your grind at work that you're trying to do unto the Lord, but you just feel unseen and overlooked. It seems meaningless, or maybe you you feel unrewarded for the good that you've done. And friends, if that's you, remember that the true reward for righteousness is God Himself. The God who will never leave you or forsake you. I think of Mordecai's waiting and the pain of of waiting that we experience. Waiting for that prayer to be answered. Waiting for an injustice to be made right. Waiting for the suffering to stop. We have to remember this lesson that Mordecai, he doesn't see it yet, but he'll learn it in chapter 6. God will make all things right in due time. When we feel overlooked, God is not overlooking us. Charles Spurgeon comments on this. He says, God's providence is always on time. You and I make appointments and miss them by half an hour. Some of you more than that, right? But God has never missed an appointment yet. God is never early, though we often wish he were. But he's never late. No, not by one tick of the clock. So there's a a lesson hidden for us here in Mordecai being overlooked, right? Every disappointment, every unmet expectation is a test of faith for us. Will we trust our own sort of limited spiritual eyesight or will we trust in the God who sees us, who never overlooks his people? That's number one. Number two, as we jump into chapter three, we see that God preserves us when we're opposed. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Clint, you did a great job pronouncing that name. And advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So here we're introduced to this villain, right? He's the villain of the book, Haman. And we're told that he's an Agagite, meaning he is a descendant of Agag the Amalekite. Now this is the kind of stuff that I'm tempted to skip over in my Bible reading. You're like, uh, Haman was a whatever, his father was whoever, and he's from wherever. Does it really matter? Yes, it matters. And here's an example of how these things matter. This background is extremely important for this chapter. Because if you look back at Exodus 17, when Israel is coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites, so well, that's what Haman is, as an Agagite, the Amalekites attacked Israel. And what did they try to do? They tried to wipe them out. And God gives Israel the victory, and as a result... God curses the Amalekites. He puts this distinct curse on them as marked enemies of God's people. Exodus 17 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's the, the group that Haman is a part of as an Agagite. Then... As we we fast forward on in the story from Exodus to 1 Samuel 15, when Saul becomes the first king of Israel, he is supposed to carry out judgment against who? The Amalekites led by Agag. But Saul disobeys God, 1 Samuel 15. He spares Agag. So the, the Agagites were bitter enemies of God and his people. In fact, later on in the first century, you'll see that Jewish writers use that term Agagite to refer to any of their enemies. So the Romans were called Agagites. Bitter enemies of God's people. Now, it gets even more interesting when we consider Mordecai's ancestry here. So we have the Agagite, descendant of the Amalekites, enemies of God's people. But then Mordecai, remember in Esther chapter 2, we're told that he is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, meaning Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. So there is this history here. The people of Mordecai, the Benjaminites and the Agagites, are are complete and total rivals. And Mordecai sees him not just as some guy who's exalted, but as a representative of the enemies of God. So Mordecai is not only overlooked at the end of chapter 2, he sees in his mind, wickedness personified, exalted at the beginning of chapter 3. Now, we're not told the reason he doesn't bow down and pay homage to, uh, to, um, to the Agagite, to Haman, but it starts to make sense when you consider that history, right? He, he refuses to bow down. Now, Haman doesn't notice this at first, But some of the servants notice that there's, you know, this one guy just standing. I just imagine Mordecai just like, not going to do it, right? Stubbornly standing there. And some of the the king's servants start to notice. Verse 3, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So he followed the story. Mordecai's silent at first. He's sitting there. Stop talking to me. I'm not giving you an answer. I'm not telling you why. I think he's also probably being wise here. Esther, he, he's, he's probably thinking of the well-being of Esther. I, I can't stand up to this man. I can't stand, uh, bow down to this man and honor him. But I also don't want to stir up any unnecessary trouble. But apparently they pester him so much he does tell them, hey, listen, I am a Jew. And then Haman makes the connection. Haman would have known of this. Verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman's angry for two reasons. First, his pride is damaged by one man who refuses to bow. He's just like King Ahasuerus when Vashti refuses to come. He can't handle it in his pride and ego and arrogance. And the other reason is because as an Agagite, he hates the people of God. So this is not just about two guys who can't get along. This is about God and his enemies. And friends, this is true of, of the enemies of God throughout all of the ages. Pride, hatred of God, leads to opposition of God's people. Now, now what, does this, what does this mean for uh, so, but behind all of this opposition to God, his word and his people, is a greater enemy, an enemy greater than Haman, and that is the enemy, Satan. Right? This is Satan trying to do what he did in the garden. This is Satan trying to do what he's done all throughout the scriptures, and it's what he's trying to do today, stomp out the flame of God's people. And Ian Duguid comments on this. He says the reason that this conflict is so often a part of Our earthly experience as Christians is that there is a hidden spiritual conflict that's been going on since the beginning of the world. Haman's enmity towards God's people was merely the latest manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God. Our expectation of life ought to be of a constant spiritual battle in which unseen spiritual adversaries are constantly ranged against us. You may say, what does this chapter have to do with me and my life? Well, friend, if you are a follower of Christ, there is an enemy who seeks to devour you. 1 Peter 5.8. How, how do we see this? I think we see this opposition from the enemy in three primary ways. First, the enemy opposes us through temptation. We're tempted to sin. We're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to deny God's word and his gospel. Deny him as true and good and and beautiful. Think of what happened in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. You don't see the serpent give an edict of murder. No, what does he do? He's far more subtle. There's no blatant genocide. All he had to do was trick them into thinking God was not good, true, and beautiful. So the enemy attacks all of us in a far more covert way than we often realize. Christian, are you aware of the ways the enemy opposes you through temptation? Do you, do you know your own tendencies, your own temptations to unbelief, your own struggles, so that you can, as Ephesians 6 tells us, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So you can put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The enemy opposes us from within through temptation. The second is the enemy opposes us from within the church. The short letter in the the New Testament, the book of Jude, is devoted to this, standing against false teaching from within the church. It's another way the enemy tries to destroy God's people. Jude 4 says, for certain people have, and just let me remind you how, how soon this is in the history of the church. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's from within. Jesus warns us in Matthew seven fifteen beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. If you read through the Old Testament... The primary threat to Israel was not military defeat from the outside, though that was certainly a a threat, but the primary issue for them was idolatry and faulty views of God from within. Christian, do you know your Bible well enough to spot false teaching as opposition from the enemy within the church? The best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the real thing. The best way to stand against the enemy's opposition within the church is is for faithful Christians to cherish the word of God, to love God, and to love one another. So he opposes us from within, through temptation, from within the church, and then the most blatant way is what we see here in Esther chapter 3. Third and finally, the enemy opposes us from the outside. This is clear persecution of the people of God. That's what Haman is calling for here. And we see different levels of this from extreme end of murder and physical violence and seizing of property and arrests to the more mild opposition of being ridiculed or mocked or or sort of where we are now, which is being pushed to the cultural margins for for believing the scriptures. And I'll be honest, it's really hard for us as, as Christians in the West to talk about persecution because we have not experienced it. We worship, what a a grace of God that we worship right now at this moment. None of us walked in this room with any rational fear of being arrested for what we're doing right now. We worship freely, but the reality is true Christianity, this is just a reality, is being increasingly marginalized and and mocked. We don't know what the the future holds. I'm, I'm no prophet in those regards about the opposition to Christianity, but we do know this to be true. Each of us needs to settle the issue of our loyalty to Christ now because opposition will come. And this might seem obvious, but you can't sit and stand at the same time, right? You can't stand for Christ. And then when the world comes at you with persecution and challenges your biblical views of whether it's sexuality or the sanctity of life or whatever it may be. Whatever those hot button issues are, you can't stand and sit at the same time. There is going to come a time where because of your faith in Christ and your commitment to the scriptures, you will have to take a stand, whatever that looks like. And if you think, oh, Kevin, man, you're kind of, you're getting a little crazy here. Let me just read you a passage of scripture. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus Will be persecuted. All, not some, will not might. Now, if this sounds like a bleak picture, it is, but here's the encouragement our preservation through such opposition is not dependent upon us, but it is dependent upon Christ Jesus. Mordecai is wise in this book in many ways. Right? Esther is wise in this book in many ways. But they didn't save Israel. God did. The church has been sustained throughout the ages, not because of the ingenuity or wisdom of any one person, but because Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians six. We are sustained through opposition because... Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here's what's encouraging as we look at Esther. In due time, Mordecai will be exalted and Haman will be brought low. And friends, in due time, whatever the future holds, Christ and his preserved people will be exalted and all of the enemies of Christ will be laid low. He preserves us. Number three. God identifies us with us when we're suffering. God identifies with us when we're suffering. So we come to verse 7 of chapter 3. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, so Haman and his royal servants decide, here's how they decide the day they're going to try and slaughter God's people. They cast lots, or purr, or uh, this is where we get, we see the origins of the feast of, of Purim, right? So we would call it like a rolling of the dice would be the closest example that we have. And we'll see later that when, um, when this reverses, it becomes a day to be celebrated, but right now it's a day of sheer terror. And so get the picture is like this. They're turning the page. Is it this day? No, we need two sixes, right? So let's roll two sixes, bump. No, we got two threes. Next day, right? And then they go until they get two sixes. That just would be an example. And that's how they find the day that they're going to plan to slaughter God's people and put out this edict for all of the Persians to kill the Jews who are around them. And then what Haman does is he... He takes this date that he's determined, and he, he manipulates the king. Notice how he does this as he goes to them. He essentially tells them some, some half-truths and some blatant lies to try and make him think that this is a rebellious people who's going to form a mutiny against you, king, so you need to stomp them out. That's his strategy. Verse 8, then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. Then he says, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. That's not true. Yes, their laws are different, but they pose no threat. We, we see no evidence of them dishonoring the king. Then he says, so that it, does not, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. You hear a strategy? You need to wipe these people out. Verse 11. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also do with them as seems good to you. So the king, again, Ahasuerus shows us he's, he's not one to reasonably consider something. One, there's no way Haman had this much money. 10,000 talents of silver would have been a third of the entire uh, a nation's annual budget. And he's, he basically says, I'm going to give you this money, which he can't give. He doesn't think about what would, how it would impact to, to kill this large group of people in his nation. And then he says, Hey, listen, take the money. So he gives, he, he ends up paying Haman to go carry this thing out. He gives them the signet ring, which is essentially like saying, Listen, here are the nuclear codes, go do what you want. And we read in verse 13: the letters were sent by couriers to all the kings' provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. You hear this description of the suffering. That's coming. Destroy. Total destruction. Annihilation. The edict says that you're, essentially your Persian neighbors will plunder you. They will kill you and plunder you. Oh, and by the way, that's happening in 11 months. So you have to wait to this. Some commentators think that Haman was was intentionally trying to put this gap of time to sort of add to this suffering this anticipation this prolonged sense of of trauma for what's coming and the passage ends with the wicked man enjoying a drink and the people of susa in great confusion it's not a happy ending here friends it's normal for us it would have been normal for the jews in susa to say god where are you in all of this I think it's hard, I, I'll be honest, it's really hard to look at this and say, where is God, where is Christ in this passage? But friends, he is here. You see, when we, we read in verse 12 that the edict of death is written on the 13th day of the first month. Which is the eve of the Passover. Numbers 28, 16 tells us that date very clearly. Passover was this annual festival celebrating the deliverance from oppression from Egypt under Pharaoh, God delivering his people. It was, it's the most influential event of the the Old Testament. And this feast is the most significant feast for the people of God. If you remember the first Passover, the Lord tells his people to slay a spotless lamb and place the blood on the doorposts because God was coming through the tenth plague of Egypt. God was coming through to judge every firstborn male. He was going to wipe out every firstborn male in Egypt as judgment. And Israel wasn't free from this because they're sinners too. Couldn't stand before the presence of God. So they needed a substitute, a payment. So the spotless lamb and the blood of the lamb was placed on the doorpost as a payment so the Lord would pass over them in judgment. He'd withhold his judgment for them. And so think of this in Esther chapter 3. As they are preparing the spotless lamb to slaughter in order to, to remember God's miraculous deliverance and great mercy In the Exodus, they hear an edict that they will be slaughtered in 11 months' time. And the timing is not a coincidence here. It's as if if God is saying, listen, my people, in your suffering, in your opposition, in turmoil, look to the Lamb. Look back to the Passover. Look back and remember how I rescued you from slavery, not by anything you've done, but by the blood of the Lamb. I redeemed you by the blood. Trust in me. And friends, who is the true and greater Passover Lamb? The crucified and risen Christ. That's what John the Baptist said when he saw him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see a clear gospel lesson here. As the Jews are meant to look back, to to Passover, look back to the Lamb in the midst of great opposition and suffering, so we too, when we are in the midst of great opposition and suffering, are to look back to the cross of Christ, where the Lamb was slain for us. As you face opposition of the evil one, whether through temptations to sin, or battles within the, the church, or persecution, From the outside, Passover and the fulfillment of Passover, Christ on the cross, shows us that we have one who identifies with us in our suffering. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us in with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now you may say, okay, Kevin, but you don't understand what I'm going through. I don't, but that's the point. Jesus does. Christ understands. Think of a, f- a few of the ways Jesus was overlooked, opposed, and experienced suffering. Matthew 8, 20 tells us he was homeless. Mark 11 says he experienced hunger. His family thought he was crazy. Matthew 12, Mark 3, John 7. His best friends turned his back on him in his hour of greatest need. Matthew 26. One of his closest confidants sold him to be murdered. Judas. He stood face to face with Satan, was tempted. Luke 4. He watched his best friend die, Lazarus, John 11. He endured gossip and slander. He was shamed publicly. His theology was was mocked. His preaching was critiqued. You can pick a verse for those last ones. And his disciples often misunderstood him. But ultimately, he was forsaken on the cross as the spotless Passover lamb that all who believe in him may have life. So friends... When, when you feel overlooked, look to Christ. When, when you feel opposed by the world around you or the enemy within or whatever it may be, look to Christ. And he promises to preserve you to the end. And when, when you're suffering, look to Christ who doesn't just say, I, I've dealt with that suffering on the cross and one day it will be gone. He says, I know what it's like to go through what you're going through. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. So, In closing, just consider this. Right now, Haman is dead and Christ is king. Very simple. And one day, that'll be true of every enemy that stands against Christ. Even in times of great confusion and opposition, Christ sees and sustains his people. Therefore, we can trust in him. I want to close with this benediction I read this week from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He's a man who stood for, for Christ against Nazi Germany and was imprisoned and eventually killed for his stand. And he penned this in a letter from prison. He says, may God in his mercy lead us through these times, but above all, may he lead us to himself. Let's pray together.